Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm Jo Sharp. Since conflict in Ukraine broke out at the end of February, the world has witnessed the fastest-growing refugee crisis since World War II, with over 2 million people, mostly women, children and the elderly, fleeing into neighbouring countries. The outpouring of voluntary support and solidarity for Ukrainian refugees has been remarkable. But for those without family and friends in the region, what institutional support is available and what will refugees be able to access in the long term? In this episode, we look at the roles that social protection systems in receiving countries, along with humanitarian cash-based interventions, are playing in the response to this fast-moving crisis. With me today is Zuzana Klink, who is the Livelihoods and Socioeconomic Inclusion Lead for UNHCR's Regional Bureau for Europe. Welcome to the podcast, Susanna, and thank you so much for making the time. Thanks a lot, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Susanna, it's Wednesday, it's the 9th of March, and the situation is evolving every day. But can you give us a sense of the refugee situation currently as people continue to flee Ukraine? Well, it is impossible to have an exact overview of the displacement, but we believe that over a million people may be displaced inside the country, inside Ukraine, and more than 2 million refugees have already crossed the international borders. We estimate that more than 4 million refugees from Ukraine may need protection and assistance in neighboring countries in the coming months. We don't yet have detailed information about the demographic profile, so there is no age or nationality breakdown of arrivals um, available for all countries, but we are following up with the different nationalities to collect the data. And we already know that the majority of refugees are women, children, and older persons. So can you talk us through a little bit how UNHCR is responding? I think it should be noted first that there has been tremendous solidarity and hospitality from the countries receiving refugees, including from the authorities and from the local communities. UNHCR did um, two emergency appeals for Ukraine and the and the region, which were launched on March 1st, seeking a total of 1.7 billion to respond to the needs within Ukraine and also the neighboring countries. Uh, the U- UN Ukraine flash appeal asked for 1.1 billion to assist 6 million people inside Ukraine for an initial three months. And the program includes a uh, multi-purpose cash assistance for the most vulnerable people, food assistance, water and sanitation, support to healthcare and education services, shelter assistance to rebuild damaged homes. Um, The plan also aims to deliver support to authorities to maintain and establish transit and reception centers for uh, displaced people and to prevent uh, gender-based violence. We also have an interagency refugee response plan regional one for the Ukraine situation under the leadership of UNHCR, which is asking for a preliminary of 550.6 million to help refugees in Poland, in the Republic of Moldova, in Hungary, Romania, and Slovakia, as well as in other countries in the region in order to help host countries to provide shelter, emergency relief items, cash assistance, and mental health and psychosocial support to all those who fled Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're using cash-based interventions or CBIs and how those are being integrated into the refugee response? 
we are supporting the governments in responding to to the protection and basic needs of, of refugees fleeing Ukraine. And as part of these efforts, we are working to set up multi-purpose cash assistance programs to provide emergency assistance upon arrival. Um, in Poland, we are currently rolling out a pilot program, which will start in the coming days with a partner. And in Moldova, UNHCR and the partner have started emergency cash distributions in temporary accommodation centers, uh, while the mechanism for larger scale assistance is being set up. I, I would just say a couple of words of our CBI approach in general. So cash is the preferred modality of UNHCI assistance in comparison to in-kind. Um, and we aim at providing cash that promotes inclusion and access to local sustainable services. Uh, CBI is provided in an unrestricted manner along with services as part of a basic needs approach. Um, for UNHCR, the participation of our persons of concern as partners in the design, delivery, and monitoring of CBI to address their protection concerns is fundamental. And through CBI, refugees will also have access to digital payment solutions uh, where personal data is responsibly managed. We also facilitate CBI through a collaborative cash approach to minimize duplications. And finally, refugees receive CBI in a simple, efficient, and accountable manner that addresses the, the protection risks. So this is not only true for the Ukraine situation, but this is our approach on, on CBI in general. And I think it's part of the, the overall learning uh, on cash of all the different organizations involved, of which UNHCR is part of. Just to take a quick step back, even prior to conflict breaking out in Ukraine, due to the economic impact of COVID-19, many refugees already living in European countries have had to seek help from local social protection systems. And I'd just be interested to hear from you, how are refugees included into social protection schemes in European countries, perhaps as a matter of course? As we know, many refugees formerly self-reliant lost their jobs or had to close down their businesses um, because of the COVID-19 impact. And so they required social assistance. But we saw that oftentimes they were not able to access this assistance, but we did not have any representative data or a good overview in this regard. So we conducted this mapping together with our country operations in order to really better understand the access to social protection. And there we looked at social assistance, social insurance and labor market support schemes and also provided disaggregated data by the legal status. So on asylum seekers, refugees, subsidiary protection holders, and stateless persons for all countries in Europe. In general, we can say that social protection systems throughout Europe benefit from a largely favorable legal framework in comparison to many other parts of the world. Uh, within the European Union, Article 34.1 of the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights stipulates that the union recognizes and respects the entitlement to social security benefits and social services to everyone legally residing in the EU. And this also includes uh, persons with a refugee status. The right to social assistance is specifically recognized as the means of ensuring a decent existence for those who lack sufficient resources and of combating social exclusion and poverty. So the situation is quite unique as in other regions of the world, uh, we often don't have functioning social protection systems that can absorb refugees. We do have a couple of exceptions as for example, in Brazil, the Bolsa Familia 
um, responded to the Venezuela situation, including refugees. And there are also a couple of other examples in the Americas, but uh, still the social protection systems in uh, Europe are very comprehensive and not comparable with social protection systems of the majority of the rest of the world. For asylum seekers, because this is all for recognized refugees, so for asylum seekers, compared to refugees, they usually are not included in the mainstream social protection schemes, but um, fall under specialized programs to cover the basic needs. In the EU, for example, we have the reception directive that sets out uh, the minimum criteria to, to support asylum seekers and cover the basic needs. In Portugal, however, under the COVID-19 situation, um, the governments in response to, to the economic challenges in this regards uh, opened their social protection schemes to asylum seekers and to migrants who were then granted full access to mainstream social protection schemes, which of course we highly applauded. But although the, the, as I said, the legal framework is quite favorable, we still have quite a few barriers that we have also identified through our mapping. So let's first look at the legal barriers which exist and still continue to impede the access by refugees. These barriers may include the length of residence in the country that is required in order to access a scheme or sometimes um, the nationalities required in order to access schemes. There's also significant evidence suggesting that claims to social protection, specifically social assistance benefits, can have some negative impacts on applications for a regularization of legal status, long-term residence, family reunification, and naturalization. So this can disincentive refugees from applying for certain forms of social protection, even if these are legally entitled. But equally, and perhaps even more importantly, we, we have administrative barriers that also impede the access to social protection systems or that serve as de facto deterrence. Uh, these include documentation requirements, which refugees may not meet, for example, that you need a birth certificate in order to access specific benefits. Uh, the lack of access to bank accounts, uh, which is required in order to register and receive social assistance. And refugees often have challenges to access bank accounts also due to um, numerous barriers in this regard. We have uh, the ambiguous interpretation of the law. If refugees are not explicitly mentioned, as eligible, a lack of access to services both in person and online. For online services, for example, oftentimes an ID is required in order to access uh, and refugees don't have the ID in order to have the right number to enter and access. You need the internet connection and the devices. Oftentimes the phone support is uh, monolingual um, and if you don't speak the local language, you cannot access. Refugees may not have the means for transport in order to go to the social services uh, and so on. So based on the mapping, we um, identified a couple of recommendations in order to, to enhance access to social protection schemes in general, many of which are also relevant now for the, for the Ukraine situation. So first of all, we continue to build uh, public support for inclusion by highlighting the benefits of holistic approaches, access to safety nets, and the potential contributions of refugees in creating diverse, robust societies. We recommend the review of social protection laws and policies to ensure that they are inclusive, non-discriminatory, and consistent. We recommend to raise awareness among social services and local authorities on administrative and practical barriers and how to tackle these. 
And we also recommend the participation of refugees in the assessment, the development, implementation, monitoring, and evaluation of social protection schemes and social services to ensure that these take into consideration their needs and capacities. So when you were conducting that mapping, of course, looking at the situation of uh, refugees coming from outside of European countries who are fleeing different conflicts around the world, coming back to the Ukraine situation, in line with your findings, how are you seeing Ukrainian refugees being integrated into social protection systems in neighbouring countries? So I think there's an important additional element, which uh, we have not had before, because the, the European Commission, EU Justice and Home Affairs Ministers met on the 3rd of February in order to discuss the, the European Commission proposal to activate the EU Temporary Protection Directive in order to respond to the situation in Ukraine and arrivals to the EU of uh, people seeking safety. Uh, the ministers agreed to the proposal, and this is the first time ever that the Temporary Protection Directive has been activated, and on March 4th, is entered into force for one year. Once implemented by the member states, it will provide immediate protection in the EU for Ukrainians and third country nationals, with refugees or permanent resident status in Ukraine, who were living in Ukraine um, on February 24th. So the state of February 24th is important. EU states should implement the Temporary Protection Directive as soon as possible to quickly provide people fleeing with much-needed safety and protection. In the directive, we have important elements uh, which were not there before for refugees. So the Temporary Protection Directive includes the access to social welfare or means of subsistence upon arrival. As I said before, that asylum seekers only had access to limited specific social protection schemes under the, the reception directive. But now the temporary protection directive speaks about access to, to social welfare um, from the onset. And it also includes other rights that asylum seekers usually don't have as for example, the access to, to the right of employment right upon arrival, and also other important elements that um, are also included for asylum seekers in general. But for example, the access to, to education is mentioned there, the access to medical treatment, the access to accommodation or housing, which are all very important elements when we speak about access to integration and inclusion in the country. In accordance with the Article 7 of the directive, um, member states may also apply this decision to, to other persons, including to, to stateless persons and to nationals of third countries other than Ukraine, who are residing legally in Ukraine and who are unable to return in safe and durable conditions to their country of origin. And also it's important to mention that the Temporary Protection Directive is a minimum directive and member states may do more and expanded to additional caseloads or to provide more rights and services than stipulated there. And UNHCR very much encourages the broad application of the temporary protection directive to other nationalities in order to, to provide protection. How the directive is being implemented very much depends on each uh, member state. So while some member states are using the specific social protection system that are and the support being set up for asylum seekers, 
others are including them in their mainstream social protection schemes. And this is also still being uh, developed currently in order to provide the response. Refugees are also not necessarily always aware yet on the temporary protection directive. So um, this is one of the issues we are also seeing with UNHCR that there's a need to, to provide adequate information in order for, for refugees to be able to access these schemes and uh, to ensure um, that they have access to their rights. It is really fascinating um, to see this crisis unfold in a part of the world where social protection is so well developed, perhaps not in every country, but certainly in aggregate and compared to many other regions of the world in Africa or even Latin America, Southeast Asia. It's really interesting as we start to hear some reports about how those might be made available to refugees. I saw, for example, that Ukrainian families will have access to the family benefits that are provided in Poland to Polish families and that, you know, over time they'll have access to other, other services as part of the regular provision of social protection in that country. So you were saying that this is the first time that the Temporary Protection Directive has been invoked and it was really interesting to hear you describe the way it potentially extends social protections and other forms of support, not just to Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine, but other people who need to leave Ukraine and are unable to return to home countries for whatever reason. I know it's early days, but how do you think this might advance the discussion in Europe about integration and how these sorts of protections might be extended to other refugees in the future? Yeah, I mean, I already mentioned that uh, we encourage the broad application of the temporary protection directed to other nationalities to provide effective um, protection. In addition, we have a huge interest of all kinds of stakeholders now to, to respond the, to the Ukraine crisis. And we very much hope that this will also positively influence the response to, to refugees from other nationalities. When we are looking at, at possible solutions and discussing with the different stakeholders, we always put the, the issue of refugees of other nationalities on the table in order to, to enhance inclusion and ensure that everybody can benefit from the different programs and services being provided in order to, to ensure that anybody with a refugee status, independent of, of the nationality, has the same rights and access to services. As we see in the media and when we hear about people leaving Ukraine, we often do hear about people who are travelling to stay with family and friends in neighbouring countries. There's a lot of informal support being provided um, by civil society organisations, churches, community groups, those sorts of institutions. What role do you think informal social protection will play in this crisis? Well, we have seen incredible generosity from all sides, from the citizens, from civil society, organizations, from public services, national and local governments, and also the private sector. There are financial and material donations, such as, for example, food, water, or hygiene items. There are offers for, for free transport and accommodation, both in, in people's homes and also in hotels um, made available by private companies. We have seen offers of interpretation, psychological counseling, access to mobile communication in order to be able to contact family members and friends, information provision and so on. So it's really quite impressive, uh, the current response. And also many reception centers um, 
are not fully occupied because there is so much uh, accommodation in, in private settings through families and friends and other networks and also from citizens from the different countries. But uh, we also have to say that, I mean, many Ukrainians who are currently arriving have networks of families and friends because there is a huge diaspora um, of Ukrainians in Europe. But we are also expecting more Ukrainians to arrive in the future that perhaps have less networks of families and friends. And this may require more assistance and who are also more vulnerable. Uh, we also have already seen people who arrive more disoriented and without a, a clear country where they would like to, to reach and settle and this way um, also have less support and, and need uh, more institutional support in order to respond to their needs. And of course, we do have uh, refugees who are not Ukrainian, who were already refugees or asylum seekers or in other needs of international protection in Ukraine and now arriving in, in the European countries who don't have this network and need institutional support from the onset. On the other side, it's also important to say, I mean, the, the situation is very volatile and it's just started and we don't know how long this will last. So perhaps in the beginning, we have a, a very generous support from everybody in order to, to find private solutions. But at some point, um, the networks and friends and families may not be able to cope anymore and they will need to have support from institutional uh, side in order to, to cope with the situation and to provide the necessary access, not only to cover the basic needs, but also for people to be able to, to get included in the, in the host society, to access the different services, to be able to, to find employment and so on. So it is very difficult to say right now how this will evolve over the time. But for now, it's really impressive and uh, it's wonderful to see that it's really a whole of society approach that everybody wants to support and provide assistance. What are the lessons about providing cash-based interventions and other forms of social assistance from other humanitarian emergencies in other parts of the world can be applied to this crisis? Well, the situation is quite unique in my view. So it's difficult to compare this situation to, to other previous refugee crises. I was just describing the, this whole of society response from everybody. And uh, depending on where you are, this, yeah, this response is just not available. It's not existing. I also already uh, spoke about UNHCR's approach to cash. And I think this is perhaps something that it's important to link to, to previous crisis as part of the learning, just because we, we now have a very inclusive cash approach in order to ensure the connection to social protection systems and to avoid any parallel mechanisms, but to facilitate inclusion from the onset and through, uh, through CBI facilitate access to social protection to, to employment, uh, to financial inclusion. So this is something I think is important from previous crisis that is, is the learning that is being applied. But of course, as I was saying, we are only providing emergency cash because it's the government who are providing um, the longer term support and, and the inclusion of the social protection systems. So it's still a bit different uh, than in other contexts. One additional point I would also very much like to, to underline is just the need uh, 
not to forget the other refugee crisis. When we are speaking about the Ukraine crisis, this is now in the media, everybody is thinking of it, but uh, we also have many other refugee crises around the world in Syria, Yemen, Somalia, and Iraq, just to, to name a few. And these should not be forgotten. On the other side, We also see a very generous support in these countries from the neighboring countries in those regions that have welcomed refugees in their territory in large numbers, and which is also something that is very much to applaud. So the response now in the Ukrainian crisis is also comparable to, to what is being done in other parts of the world. And we would also like to highlight that neighboring countries are often playing a very important role to support uh, refugees arriving to the territories. Susanna Klink, I know you're very busy at the moment responding to this situation, so thank you once again for making the time to talk to us today. No, thanks a lot, Joe. It's been a big pleasure and it's really important also for us to speak about social protection and refugees' inclusion to social protection systems, not only as part of the Ukraine situation, but also in general. So many thanks for this opportunity. And thank you for tuning in to this bonus episode of the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org from the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider. We'll be back again at the end of this month with a new episode on our regular schedule. See you then.